Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Kazoo and Keep Your Eyes Open are pleased to present Stay Out of the Mall 13, a festive music festival that benefits the Canadian Cancer Society towards leukemia research. Night one takes place Thursday, December 11th at Silence and features performances by Jennifer Castle, John Southworth, and Shopkeeper. Night two takes place Friday, December 12th at the E-Bar with Mets, Weaves, and Badminton Racket. Silence is an accessible venue at 46 Essex Street. The E-Bar is located at 41 Quebec Street, but has stairs and is regrettably not a physically accessible space. Tickets to both all-ages licensed shows are available at ticketbreak.com or bring a non-perishable food item to the bookshelf at 41 Quebec Street or to the door and save $2 off admission. Learn more about Stay Out of the Mall 13 at their Facebook event page. See you all there. Creative Control with Beach Comic. Last night I saw Bob Dylan again, twice in a row in Toronto, and the set was the same both nights, but it was different. People like me will tell you it was different. There were subtleties. A bit looser on Tuesday. Not mistakes per se, but just a little looser. Seemed almost a little pristine on Monday, and this in in comparison a little bit looser, but I noticed some things, and I liked it. And I wish, you know, I go to see Bob Dylan a bunch, I've seen him a lot. And when I go to see him, I kind of want to see him again. I'm kind of like that with a lot of things. If I get to see a thing a couple nights in a row, I just want to keep going. But didn't happen. It's very expensive. But it's important. It's important for me, for some reason, to shout out the big bucks and see people like Bob Dylan. It was great. I, if you're listening and you see that he's coming to your town and you can get a good seat, I would go. Great seats. Oh, we had great seats. It was just good. I had a good time. Good, good time. Oh, what else is happening? Oh, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, I'm having a second child, my wife and I. She's mostly having the child. And he's, he or she, I don't know what it is, due December 6th. But we came to term last Saturday, so really, at any point, we're not prepared. First time we were all ready to go. Mentally, you know, we had stuff ready to go. This time we just are like, meh, did it once. I don't know. It's I don't. I'm starting to get nervous about it. So any at any moment there will be a second child. 
There could be a disruption in the shell, I would presume so. I'd be a terrible person if there wasn't. Really. So, it's just something I wanted to... ...mention here. I don't know. Hopefully everything's fine. But, uh... Yeah. Just the thing I wanted to mention. On this episode, Slim Twig joins me for a chat about his newly re-released album, A Hound at the Hem. It came out two years ago, kind of self-released on his own label. And now the uh, American label DFA is re-releasing it and ahead of actually putting out a, a, a new Slim Twig album. They are fans of it. Nice story he tells about how they got involved. And you're going to hear songs from this record as well, A Hound at the Hem. So that's the deal. That's the show. I hope you enjoy it. And savor the shows. I don't know if there's going to be more shows. There will be. There has to be, right? Savor. Let's all savor this. Or don't. It's not Bob Dylan, for crying out loud. Slim Twig's pretty pretty great, so... Anyway, there we are. Listen. This episode is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero, the finest pizzeria in all of Guelph, Ontario. They've got delicious gourmet pizzas or choose from an array of fresh ingredients and make whatever you like. Calzones, wings, panzerotti, salads, breadsticks, garlic bread. Pizza Trocadero has it all. You can find them at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph or visit them online at trocaderoguelph.ca. That's T-R-O-K-A-D-E-R-O-G-U-E-L-P-H dot C-A. Call them at 519-829-2444 for pickup or delivery. That's Pizza Trocadero, a place of the good trade. Twig is the moniker for a young man from Toronto named Max Turnbull, who is a noted actor and musician. Over the past 10 years, he has released a lot of challenging, artful pop music in projects like Tropics, Archaic Women, Plastic Factory, U.S. Girls, and of course, Slim Twig. 
In 2010, he made a record called A Hound at the Hem, but it didn't see the light of day until 2012 when he released it via Toronto's Pleasance Records and the Calico Corp label he operates with his wife, Megan Remy, of U.S. Girls. The record is now seeing wide release via DFA Records, who also plan to put out the next Slim Twig album. Here to discuss this further is Slim Twig, a.k.a. Max Turnbull. Hello, Max. How's it going? I'm very well. How are you doing? I'm pretty well. I'm pretty well. Where in the world are you? I am in New Mexico. I'm near Coyote, New Mexico, house-sitting for some uh, touring musicians or friends, and they've got a lovely barn that's sort of been converted into a music studio. So I'm here with uh, my partner Megan and my friend Simone, who's a very good drummer, and we're just kind of getting down to business trying to write new stuff and record out here. Now you and Simone are primarily in, uh, you, you two are Tropics usually, right? Well, we were in a band called Tropics that lasted for 10 years um, from sort of our adolescence into our 20s, and uh, that band kind of sort of came to an end, um, but we still wanted to make music together. So we now do a new band, which seems kind of ridiculous after all the crazy names that you listed that I've already been a part of. Um, We have a new band that's called Darlene Shrug that's uh, the three of us, Megan, Simone, and myself, writing the songs, and we perform... um, as a five-piece, so there's two other uh, ladies who play with us, um, who play in the band Ice Cream, so the five of us make Darlene Shrug live. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I saw Darlene Shrug uh, sort of mentioned with, within your general biography that I read recently, but I was like, I don't know that thing, and I've already, as you mentioned, I listed quite a number of yeah. things, but uh, have you been playing much with Darlene Shrug? Um, we, we've only played uh, three shows so far. We've kind of been purposely under the radar trying to do shows where it was just only our band playing really Mm -hmm. um and sort of making these kind of odd curated events so we did like july uh 4th american independence and um we did a valentine's show and then we've only done i think one or two other shows on top of that but um we're kind of trying to stockpile a bunch of recordings so we can have like a record come out and then we'll play with other bands and kind of spread the, the word a little bit more with that project. Okay, and just to clarify, you didn't play a Valentine's Day show on July 4th? No. So we did, our first show was a, like, Valentine's Day-themed show, and then the second show was a American Independence Day-themed show. My wife's American, so it was sort of to make her feel at home in Canada. Okay, so that's interesting. You did a thing where people are conjoined romantically and a thing where people are independent. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. That's a, a good interpretation. <laughs> okay, and and so New Mexico, I don't know what if you've talked to anyone up here because you are you still living primarily in in Ontario? Or are you in New York? Where are you living? No, we we live in Toronto. But okay. um, you know, one of the perks of being a musician is being able to stay with friends in other places and this sort of thing. So we're very fortunate to be in New Mexico, although it's snowing here. So I was going to ask. Go it's figure. it's terrible here. It's snowing and cold all of a sudden. And I just wondered what it was like in New Mexico. It's the same. Well, we thought we'd be escaping some of that, and as it turns out, we do have a desert landscape. It just happens to be covered with snow, so it's kind of psychedelic, actually. Ah, interesting, yeah. Now, I don't. Uh, this is a potentially a silly, obvious question, but are you a fan of Breaking Bad? I am, yes. So being in New so Mexico, is that weird? 
only thing that's weird about it is that it seems like uh, we did get to spend a day or two in Albuquerque, kind of en route out to this more secluded area um, that we're now staying. And in Albuquerque, it seems like there's a lot of pride in the kind of imagery of that show. Like there's lots of, I don't know, T-shirts and posters and things for sale. So it does seem kind of funny for a city to take pride in like those sorts of characters. But uh, it's fully embraced here in New Mexico. Oh, okay. So people aren't... Have you ever been to Fargo? I haven't been to Fargo. So that'll be the next outpost to cross off the list as far as like famous. Well, no, I went. I, I went. No crime. I went to stories. see. I went to see Bob Dylan in Fargo, like I don't know, twelve years ago or something. And we right. were just killing time. And we went to like at the time there was a chain called Blockbuster Video, which I don't think exists anymore. And we went in, okay. and, and I just wanted to, as a joke, kind of went up to them, and I was like, "Do you guys have any copies of Fargo here?" And they yeah. just sort of rolled their eyes, and I was like, yeah, what's the deal? Like, yeah. Is that weird that Fargo is, you know, you're known for this movie, really? And they were like, well, yeah. it's really annoying because we're not, that movie doesn't even take place here. I was like, oh. Right. <laughs> Apparently the action of the film takes place in Fargo, and then the the real, like, or rather the, the plot, like the, have you seen Fargo? I don't want to ruin the movie for you. Of course, yes, of course. So I think the meeting to hatch the plan takes place in Fargo, but nothing else really happens in Fargo. I see. And so it's misplaced. They're a little offended that everyone thinks of Fargo as this crime-ridden hellhole. Well, on top of that, they probably have lots of people driving to Fargo to try and dig up the money, or at least I've heard of this rumor <laughs> happening. Really? And it's not even the right place. Yeah, crazy, crazy fans huh. driving to Fargo and I guess a little bit unsure of the relationship between the fictional and, uh, you know, real life. Now, as a fan of Breaking Bad, were you tempted to try to spot some, you know... Try any math? No, no. No, no, not math. I wasn't going to go that day. I wasn't saying that. That's terrible. I wouldn't suggest that to you. No, I just meant, like, sightseeing Sightseeing in Albuquerque. Did you find any, like, spots from the from the show? No, we were there so briefly that we basically just visited a tiki bar and saw some friends of our place play some music, and um, that was kind of the extent of it, outside of, like, maybe a couple diners as well. So I didn't recognize any actual scenery from the show, but, um, yeah, I guess the vibe was there, the New Mexican vibe. <laughs> well, that's good. I'm glad you're down there, even though it's snowing. I feel bad for you. You'd think it would be nice and arid, but it's just as bad maybe as up here. Well, I'm holed up here with um, a nice little fire, so it's all good. All right, good Survive for you. Survive it. Good for you. Now, I want to talk about the story of a hound at the hem. Because, as I mentioned in the introduction, it has an interesting story. You finished it in 2010, but then you kind of shelved it? Well, I um, I started working on it in 2010, and I think it was actually finished in 2011. Um, and I thought of it as the record that would kind of fulfill my contract with Haver Bag, and they kind of had other ideas about that. So in the meantime, I ended up recording this other album, Soft Psych, which actually came out uh, ahead of A Hound at the Hem, even though it was made kind of after the fact. Um, and then, yeah, it's sort of been a nice story that uh, the album was ultimately picked up by a bigger label, and hopefully we'll find some new fans that way. Now, when you say that you were hoping to fulfill your contract with Paperbag and they had other ideas, were they just not a fan of, of A Hound at the Hem? Um. I guess that would be a question more for them whether or not they could sort of find a way into it and be sort of fans of it 
versus wanting to put it out, maybe there is a discrepancy there. I'm not sure. So I wouldn't want to speak to them as far as what they thought quality-wise of the music, but they didn't think it was a fit for their label, essentially. Um, I think it was just a little more eclectic than some of the stuff that they're used to releasing. Um, so ultimately, you know, I, co- I come away from that experience thinking it was sort of a wash. Like, my music wasn't a good fit for that label, um, and I don't have any harsh feelings about it. But, uh, yeah, I guess it was just a little bit off the wall for some people. Now, how do you... How would you compare what soft psych was compared to what uh hound of the hem was i mean can you could they they were into putting out the other record yeah and do you have i think simply i think just pretty simply you know soft psych was made um to be a lot more accessible that's frankly that's the extent of it, you know, How Did the Hem is a challenging album, um, and I, I, I am conscious of that, and I was made more conscious of that um, by the label's initial reaction to it. Um, but it was, a, you know, a sustained piece of writing where I was trying to convey certain themes across the length of a, of a full record and have sort of a narrative aspect to it. So there was a lot of sort of ambitious ideas that I had that I was trying to work through with that album. Um, and, you know, some people like music for different uh, reasons. You know, I, I like music that I can really engage with, and I'm always excited by records that I don't maybe don't understand off the top. Like the first listen is is a challenge for me, and, and some of my favorite records are ones that you know, as as a listener, you have to make some effort and and meet the record halfway and find your way into it. Um, and I think that that record. Uh, was consciously an attempt to do that, something that people would have to sort of digest a little bit more. Um, and Soft Psych, I guess, was a collection of, of songs that wasn't didn't have cohesion as far as like a theme or a, a lyrical bent. Um, it was more something where, you know, maybe if you'd hear the tune, it would be pleasing to you, sort of a classic kind of pop record. Right, and I think, I feel like at the time you were making comments in the press about how that was a realm you were interested in moving into, of, of being a little more pop-oriented and accessible. Is that not the case? For sure. I mean, I, I just have a pretty omnivorous appetite as far as music is concerned. I I like all kinds of stuff that is, um, you know, very classic in its songwriting and sort of pop ambitions, and I like challenging stuff as well. Um, and I think my music is best when I'm able to merge those two sensibilities, um, sort of having one foot in both worlds, uh, although I think that, that makes my music a tough sell for... Um, a large percentage of people um, not really knowing what to make of it. You know, it's not exactly pop music. It's not exactly experimental. It's somewhere in between. So I think Hound really embodies that fully, that uh, duality that I really seek um, in the music that I listen to and the music that I try to make, whereas Soft Psych is something of a concession as far as trying to emphasize more the pop side of things. But I, that's not to really speak ill of that record. It's just a different kind of thing. Um, I still like that record, and I don't see it as being some big compromise of any kind of integrity or, or anything like that. Now, you you mentioned some of the things you're interested in trying to put forward in your work. I think over the years, uh, it has been difficult to categorize, but certain things seem to come up a lot. The idea of there being um, a goth or rockabilly aspect to your work, the idea that you are interested in, I don't know, spooky stuff, sort of funhouse halloween like you know what i'm do you know where i'm going with this i know where you're going with that but i think that those are more characterizations that have been made by like the canadian press you know 
um, which is kind of unfortunate because I don't I don't really associate my stuff with being something spooky or gothy or rockabilly. Th- those are kind of things that are labels that have been put on the music after the fact. Um, I don't really identify as someone who's trying to make music to spook people or something. I think that there, you know, that might be an initial uh, reaction to it, but I think that there's more there. Where do you think that's coming from then? Is is, is it is it laziness or is it actually stemming from something? It's hard for you to be objective about this, but are people hearing yeah. s- tones and sounds that are reminiscent of things they associate with, you know, the the, the things I mentioned earlier? Is that probably where it is? Are you or do, do you do you feel like you are are going after something a little off kilter? Um, I think it's a combination of things. You know, first off, uh, I'm self-trained as far as my capacity with instruments and writing and all of it. So it's really the the natural kind of evolution of someone whose primary strength is an enthusiasm for music and um, a keen ear towards, like, certain evolutions of sound. Um, So... I don't have the benefit of like piano lessons or guitar lessons or something. So my natural musical style isn't one that um, is entirely conventional, shall we say, to begin with. Um, So I think that there's kind of a sonic aspect to it where, you know, my style of playing is a little bit idiosyncratic. um, And so people associate a kind of strangeness with that. I mean, there's no question that I've been interested in dark themes uh, on top of that kind of sonic element that I'm talking about. Um, that that is that's something that's hard for me to speak about. I'm just naturally drawn to writing stuff about that. But I think that um, there's there's an evolution to that as well, um, and I'm, I've sort of moved away from that. And essentially, it's just difficult to be a kind of artist who doesn't stay in one place for too long. So I think you kind of have labels thrown at you. Um, as each release comes out that are kind of, if you're changing, it's, it's kind of a frustration to be hearing things about rockabilly or something when that's related to work I did in 2009. Yeah. Now, a lot of artists, the music that they made in 2009 um, is, is similar to the music they're making now, and it's just a further refinement, whereas I'm the kind of artist who's kind of, you know, trying things out of whole cloth each go-around, you know, trying to create something new and being excited and stimulated by different ideas. So you're saying so I don't know. That's kind of a roundabout way of answering the question, but no, no, it's but, fair. It was a it was a vaguely roundabout question, um, but I, I do think it's interesting that you're saying that you're coming at everything almost from a fresh perspective with no real preconceived notion. You're an artist that's always changing. Yeah. That means that every record could be different. Yeah, for sure. But you are kind of coming to the same tools, and in some cases, the same tones, right? Well, in some cases, I, I, I mean, it just depends on how long people have been aware of my music. You know, the first stuff that I came out with was entirely sample-driven. Um, and, and you compare that to The Hound, which is, you know, the instrumentation is string quartet uh, and harpsichord and drums and bass and all that. So I think that there's an evolution there that's different. Certainly there are similar themes and similar perspectives and similar personas being explored in the music. So I do think that there is a through-line uh, with that stuff, but um, I think musically, that's something that's sort of defined my approach thus far. Is you know having be, being open to to new ideas and new enthusiasms as far as how I want the music um, to sound. I'm, I'm someone who 
I'm trying to make music that I personally would like to see come out in the world and hear further. So as my tastes change, so my music evolves in that sort of direction as well. Right. You mentioned different personas, and from from my perspective, it's interesting to hear you sing um, because you often employ different voices. Uh, it's not only sometimes it's not only song to song; it can be verse to verse or yeah. verse to chorus. It's just like a totally different voice. And I'm curious where that where that uh, impulse comes from to kind of constantly be changing uh, the identity of of the singer. I guess, yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, I don't know. My style is is pretty uh, intuitive. I think the song dictates a lot of what the vocals ultimately deliver. The song asks for certain different, you know, moods or different vibes. And, you know, something that's common in my tunes is a sort of sense of drama. Um, I don't shy away from that. I don't shy away from passion or, or that sort of thing, and um, I don't know, I, I've always liked singers who can incorporate different sorts of voices, you know, Tom Waits has all kinds of different voices, even Paul McCartney, he's got a wide range of, of stuff, Yeah, I don't think I'm quite the singer in the, in that, in, in the way that those guys are, but, um, you know, having many voices is a good resource, I think. No, it is, it totally is, and it, it I mean, we've kind of hinted at the fact that this this record might have been a bit challenging for some people. In a sense, it is a narrative-based record, right? I mean, it's an homage to a Serge Gainsbourg record. Uh, this is what I've heard. Is this true? Is it, a, is it a, sort of an homage to Histoire de Melody Nelson? Is that the idea? I mean, that's, that's part of it. Um, the, the genesis of the album was wanting to make a work that was conceptual in nature, as pretentious as that sounds, we can get all the cliches out of the way sure. about wanting to make a narrative album. Um, it was something where I wanted to push myself sort of beyond the limits of what I felt I was entirely capable of and see what the results of that experiment would, would be. So to kind of make it easier on, my, on myself, um, you know, I, re- I recognize that uh, there, there had been an album already that had been sort of taken its inspiration from Nabokov's novel, Lolita. Mm-hmm. I think it, it was useful for me to kind of use the Gainsbourg album and it's, um, the themes that it, that it took from, from Nabokov as well as, as its sort of orchestral and rock merger, as well as the, the Lolita, the, the novel itself, and sort of use those kind of cultural pieces as sort of a scaffolding to help me create my own work. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Um, because as I say, I made this record... Um, primarily by myself. I did have the help of my friend Louis Percival, who played a lot on the record. He played drums and bass, but I played almost everything else except for the strings, of course, and I engineered the album, mixed it, produced it, like, did the whole thing. So, um, just the, the, the idea itself of making the album was such an ambitious thing for me to do, coming from the work that I had made previously, that it was helpful to have these other kind of cultural works as something to build on top of and use as sort of a spark for my imagination is what I was trying to get at. Okay, and so was Lolita what initially sparked the idea, or was it the actual album by Serge Gainsbourg? Well, I think the idea that initially sparked the album was wanting to make an album that was a kind of grander statement, sort of something more ambitious and Baroque. So having that as the sort of seed of the idea, the desire to make that sort of album... And then that kind of merged into just sort of an inspiration that I had from Lolita and from the Gainsbourg album and sort of using those as, as a step up into, you know, letting my imagination sort of uh, run wild within those themes and within the, the desire of wanting to make this certain kind of album. Do you think it's possible that, like, I, I, I understand these themes to be running through this record and, and I understand that its influence... Uh, comes from these aforementioned um, people and 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 books and albums, but I don't right. know that I would have picked up on that if it hadn't been framed this way in the promotional materials. I find that your record is yeah. is distorted. It's murky. I I find that the in some ways the lyrics are almost barely articulated. It's almost guttural. Is that purposeful for you? Right. Well, I don't think that the backstory is necessary towards the enjoyment of any artifact. At the end of the day, you know that's all just sort of fuel for the creator um, to sort of take into account, and that's just the journey that any piece of work, you know, takes along the way to being completed. I don't think all this uh, extra backstory is necessary towards communicating what is essential about the album. I think that listeners, you know, find their way in, and if they're adventurous enough, they'll find what is essential to them, whether it's a sonic aspect or a narrative aspect. You don't have to read the lyric sheet to gain an appreciation for the album, I don't think. Um, I just, I personally like music that um, supports that kind of further engagement, that um, wh- where there's room to dive in on the headphones and hear things you didn't hear and sort of rediscover new aspects of the music. And I think that records like that sort of age well. So Hmm. to me, I I wanted to make something that is open for interpretation. Um, Having said that, you know, talking about the influences and stuff is maybe a way in for people to find out uh, what's kind of going on. Because as you say, it is a little bit murky and purposely so. Yeah, and and within that, there's also this high-end orchestration, if I might say. You have Owen Pallet, you have St. Kitts, Doing strings, yeah. Um, was that something that you had formulated making the record, or was that something you thought of adding 
after the fact where you're like, this needs something. Which came first? No, it was definitely everything was tracked with the idea that strings would be sort of the last step. Um, I didn't know fully that Owen Pallet would be the one who would work on the record when I was tracking it, but I always had ambition to have you know, the orchestral element to the album and was extremely fortunate that Owen was a fan of the material once it got to the point where it needed strings and, and uh, loaned some of his talent out towards the album. Yeah, and, and some of the some of the contributions do give the record a bit of a horror film or, or cinematic kind of quality. Um, is that? And I, and I feel like I've read that. Are, are you not a fan of like David Lynch and people like that? Yeah, of course. I'm a huge fan of David Lynch, and I think that you know he's a really good analog towards this kind of album, where there is a lot of room left for interpretation. You know, the lyrics aren't conveying something that is completely straight up. Um, there's leeway left for engagement on the part of the audience, which is something that I think is really critical in all forms of art. Yeah, I agree with you. You mentioned that you are self-trained and self-taught as a musician. What were your kind of creative pursuits like as a young person? Were you because uh, you you also have a theatrical background, right? Yeah, a little bit of one. Um, I mean, I've been in bands since I was 13, so. When I was before the age of 13, like I really wanted to be an actor, and um, I think that was just sort of more of a conventional goal than a musician at the time, and it was sort of before my musical awakening. But from the time of being 13 and being in bands, I, you know, I realized this is what I wanted to make my life's work. Um, so as a, as a young person, like it's just it, it's been you know a steady diet of music making essentially. Um, I have done some sort of performing in like in some film stuff, um, but I don't really see that as being part of the same sort of mode of expression that my albums are, are attempting. But um, yeah, I guess there's there's something helpful about having some kind of background in dramatic stuff as well. I think maybe that's you know people like David Bowie have said that's helpful towards you know writing songs from certain perspectives or whatever, and I think that that might be true. Almost occupying a role. Just, I, I don't know, having some kind of um, feeling of ability, to, you know, with regards to manipulating a persona that isn't yours in, in song form and feeling sort of confidence in that way, hmm. that confidence where you don't have to write from your own perspective. Because um, I've, I've always found it more difficult to write more directly, and maybe this touches a little bit on what you're saying about the, the lyrics being um, a little bit opaque. Uh, I have a hard time writing about myself or my situations directly. I think that my my lyrics ultimately go in that direction, but sort of via a circuitous route that kind of avoids my conscious mind or something. So right. I find little fragments that, that have to do with myself and my life only having completed the songs or whatever. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Can you can we step back and talk about what triggered your interest both in acting and, and music as a kid? You say you were playing music since you were 13 and... But you wanted to be an actor. Yeah. Do, you, do you remember what sparked those impulses when you were younger? Well, I mean, just growing up in an artistic household, it, um, I didn't really have much chance, I don't think. Um, both my parents are engaged in sort of art life and cultural stuff. Um, so I just always had sort of an, an affinity for the creative stuff. And I think wanting to be an actor um, just stemmed out of that impulse. I, I wasn't you know, someone who 
had a lot of ability as far as like painting or kind of visual stuff, although I did dabble in that. I felt more comfortable with um, performance, and I think that that's always been something that has drawn me to whatever kind of cultural stuff that I've been involved in, be it the music or the performing, like in films and stuff. I like the idea of performing for people on record or in person. Um, so there is a commonality there between the music and, and the and the acting. Um, but it's hard, it's hard to say what sparked it other than just being in a creative household and kind of having the performance bug a little bit. Your, your parents are filmmakers, right? That's right, yeah. So your parents, when you talk about growing up in an artistic uh, household, your parents are filmmakers. Uh, were there a particular, and I, presumably they were an influence on you, but were there other sort of external figures, people you looked up to as, as artists that uh, you remember being like, oh, huh, that's something I'd, I'd like to try? Um, I, when I was 12, I saw the Hives play, and that was like a real turning point for me, seeing a band whose CD I had bought and whose music I liked and seeing them in person and what that was about. Uh, was something that was a real formative experience for me. Um, so I don't, not that I credit the hives with like my musical, you know, career up to this point or whatever you want to call it, but that was a huge influence. Um, I just, I don't know, having an appetite for, for lots of music and lots of, uh, you know, books and, and movies from a young age, I think really informed wanting to engage in that, in those sorts of worlds. Okay, so it, it just it wasn't, and it was were your peers also like coming to you with like, man, check out this thing, check out this record. Yeah, for sure. I mean, my friend Simone, who I mentioned, I'm here in New Mexico with. We've been playing music together since we were 13. So, I mean, there, there's definitely a lot of commonality as far as you know, a language of music that we've grown up together with. Um, I've I've grown up playing music with all kinds of, of people and. Uh, that's that's all helpful. Okay. I was just curious about that. All right. Um, and we should talk a little bit. We didn't really touch on this too much, but how did uh, DFA, Death From Above, the record label that's re-releasing uh, A Hound mm-hmm. at the Hem, how did they become involved with you? Um, and, and in particular, how did they come to you with the idea of re-releasing a record that is already out uh, instead of just putting out yeah. a new, new record? Um. Well, this is actually a good story. I'm really pleased with how everything kind of came about because I think it was really in an organic way that they came to find out about my music. Um, you mentioned earlier the label Calico Corp, which uh, my partner Meg and I run. Um, I'm reluctant to call it a label when we're discussing DFA because it's such a small and modest project. But essentially, um, we put out a 7-inch for Eric Copeland, who's one of our favorite artists. Um, and he's he's uh, from the band Black Dice. Mm-hmm. Again, another you talk about things that were inspirational to me as a young person. Black Dice were just an absolutely huge band to me. Um, so it was kind of a natural fit putting out this Eric Seven Inch. And of course, Black Dice have connection with DFA. DFA are big Eric Copeland fans. Um, they ended up ordering the Seven Inch that we put out, and just through sort of trawling the Discogs page of our label, they saw this other album, A Hound at the Hem. Um, and uh, they they checked that out, and Jonathan, the fellow who runs DFA, um, just it really sparked a connection for him hearing this album and hearing just you know how how idiosyncratic it is. I I don't mean to sound arrogant or anything like that, but I don't really the album doesn't really sound 
like much else um, that's contemporary. So I think he kind of latched on to that, and we just sort of started talking about the the genesis of the record and the kind of path that it had taken thus far and, you know, the frustrations that I had encountered with it up to that point. Um, working with Pleasance was a great experience. The only downside to it was just, you know, the record was, there was only 300 copies pressed, so there wasn't mm-hmm. much of a way to distribute it. Um, so I think that DFA sort of stepped in and, and acknowledged my ambition to sort of see that album distributed in a further way. I felt that it was my best work up to that point, and we thought it would make a really good introduction to a wider audience before releasing new Slim Twig music. Okay, and so that's that's just it. And I like that it was the internet. I like that it was Discogs. That uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of all Thanks things, Discogs. <laughs> I yeah. I must say I use Discogs a little too much. I am uh, trying to slow down. I do. I buy stuff off of there that I that I should it's have definitely. I suffer from the same disease. It's a very addictive, uh, nerdy little website. Totally. Like, you can find anything you want ever. And uh, Yeah, I guess I shouldn't refer to it as a little website. It's actually massive. But Yeah, yeah. it's a great archive for a, a library archive as well. All right. So so this is a, a basically a, a way of introducing Slim Twig to <clears throat> the DFA audience, but they in, in sort of the press materials promoting this re-release of A Hound at the Hem. Oh, before I get to this, by the way, is, was anything done? To a hound at the hem for this re-release was it remastered, remixed, or anything like that? Um, I believe it was remastered for vinyl. Um, outside of that, it's as it was produced. Okay, but I mean, there's consignment copies that people can still pick up in Toronto record stores. It's is it going to sound a, a a heck of a lot different? Uh, I actually haven't listened to it back to back. I was really pleased with the initial master, so I think both sound good. Okay, um, all right. No, I just was. I, I yeah. just, just came to mind. I'm asking. We're talking about discogs and nerds. I thought I'd ask a nerdy yeah. audio question. That's for the collectors to decide. <laughs> uh, it seems kind of funny to be like an audio nerd with regards to your own material. So I'll, yeah. I'll, I leave that for other for sure. Okay. So as I was saying, that uh, this was uh, in, in the promo material for this re-release. There's talk of this new Slim Twig record is. Is a new Slim Twig record done and ready to go? Um, it's very close to, to being completed, yes. Okay. So that will come out on the first half of next year. Oh, great. That's great. And is there anything you can say about that at this point? Is there any grand departure or any conceptual framework uh, that uh, we need to be aware of? Um, I would say, unfortunately, yes, it is another departure from the kind of sound world of Hound at the Hem. Um, I've been sort of describing the album as having it's it's uh, a stoned protest record. Um, I don't know what that implies sonically, but it's got a little more humor to it. But it's also about real issues um, concerning creative people today, and it's it sounds uh, very modern, in my opinion. Okay. Does the album have a name yet? It does. Um, I can tell you, but I can't reveal that to the podcast. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. I don't even need to know. I, I don't want to be. Uh, I don't want to feel any more special than anyone listening to this podcast, frankly. But uh, I look forward to Fair hearing enough. it. I look forward to hearing it. So that's great. And well, what else Sounds is good. what else is coming up for you uh, in terms of touring or or anything like that? Um, well, I'll be playing some shows in January to support the new album. Or sorry, the reissued the reissued new album, however you want to phrase it. Sure. Um, so I'll definitely be playing in Toronto and Montreal and a few dates in the states, 
and wrapping up uh, finishing work on this new Slim Twig record and um, sort of laying low until that comes out and then I'll definitely be touring in earnest to try and you know reach people with with two great new albums on DFA. Nice. Well, I, I'm really happy to hear this is happening for you. I got to say, I'm a fan, and I don't know. You and I spoke like five years ago or something. I think you. I, yeah, I came on your show. I yeah, remember that. Well, I was working at CBC. I remember you coming up and being really cool. So I thank you for that. And That's great. Yeah. So uh, well, for, thank you. I appreciate the interest and for having me on your your shows, plural. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's no sweat. So I want to tell folks that for more information about a hound at the hem. And it's re-released. Um, I, I was going to direct people to slim-twig.com. Is there somewhere else they should go? Um, well, I'm new to this, but I'm also on Twitter. So uh, Twig of Toronto uh, or just the DFA site, I'm sure, would have lots of info. Okay, so, yeah. cool. And is, is if we could play a song from this new reissue uh, for people to hear, which one would you recommend? Yeah. Mm, that's a good question. Um Hover on a sliver. That's that's a good one. Now, why did that one come to mind of of all of the eight songs you could have chosen from? Why hover on a sliver? Um, it's a com it's a complex sound vibe. It's got lots going on to it. It's got an intro, a whole middle song section, and an outro that's really cool. I think it's dynamic. It's very tense. Uh, maybe not as catchy as some people would like it. So maybe it's not a, the best first thing, but if you hear it and you like it, you'll love the rest. So. Seems like a good starting point. Okay, cool. This is Hover on a Sliver by Slim Twig. And uh, Max, It's uh, as we've already established, it's nice for both of us to talk to each other. Thank you for being on the for show. Sure. And I wish you the best with everything. All right, take care. Thanks again.
If you enjoy the Creative Control podcast and want to support it with a monthly pledge, please visit patreon.com slash creative control. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash creative control with two k's. You can pledge one dollar a month or four dollars, eight dollars, thirty dollars, fifty dollars, a hundred dollars a month, whatever you want. There are gifts and incentives to pledge. But more than anything, you can keep the show going. There's no other revenue stream for this podcast. I've been doing it for my own fulfillment and to contribute something to the culture. But I think it's time to see if I can generate some kind of salary from all of this work. So, if you appreciate Creative Control, again, please consider pledging a monthly amount. All of the info you need is at patreon.com slash creative control. Thank you. Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. 
You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at vishcreative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.